Welcome, Legionaries, to episode six of Legion Cast. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is my friend Brandon and my brother, Maniple. Today, we are discussing the book Fulgrim in our episode six podcast. Hello, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, Warhound Titans. Welcome to Legion Cast. Great to be here with you guys. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It's uh, very good to be here again. I had a lot of fun on the last podcast, uh, sipping Amasek and talking about hobby stuff, and hopefully we get a little more into it tonight. Thanks, fellas. Yeah, Awesome. Yeah, we're really happy to have you back, Manipul. Uh, we had a lot of fun in the last episode, and uh, we hope that uh, you guys, our listeners, enjoyed it as well. Let's do a quick around the horn here again, though. What's, uh, what's everybody drinking tonight? I am sticking to herbal tea because talking for at least two hours destroys my voice so i'm call me a wuss if you want but it's what i gotta do incredibly weak got it i am drinking some fine italian wine um this wine in fact came out of a bottle unlike my usual box wine but uh Hmm. it's quite good i'm still working on a bottle of cheap brandy uh as when the weather when i finish this i will switch to something really nice but I've had this bottle of brandy for some years now, and it just sits there mocking me. So I'm going to drink it till it's gone, and I'll be happy that uh, I've done so. How do you know it's not varnished by now? It still tastes like brandy. I've, okay. I've smelled varnish. It doesn't smell like varnish. <laughs> you don't have to pretend like you have expensive tastes for our account, Manipul. I do a podcast every week with your brother. Clearly, we don't have... High, high. We're not highbrowed here. I do try to bring a little bit of class when I'm here. And Warwick, with your throat, uh, you might consider speaking a little deeper out of your diaphragm. You might be speaking a little too high in your in your voice and in your uh, straining your vocal cords. Use a little more diaphragm. Okay, I guess. He's saying it, take, say it with your chest. I didn't. I didn't take uh, speaking classes like somebody else here. I have. So that's your advice for the day. Okay, so let's get into the quick hobby section. Uh, This weekend, I worked on a bunch of Dreadnoughts. Um, I was hanging out with Maniple, and we were going to try to get a game in, but we did not have the time for it. Um, I did work on a few of my Dreadnoughts. Um, I picked up... I've had the uh, the ranged Leviathan Dreadnought for a while now, and I got the arms magnetized on it. So they're interchangeable on both sides. And then last week, I picked up the melee version, so I'd have melee arms and ranged arms. Well, unbeknownst to me, the mounting on the uh, the lower arm for the melee dreadnought and the elbows that they slot into are slightly different than the ranged variant. So all the magnets that I got for the ranged variant don't quite fit. So... I ended up permagluing one of the arms uh, on the melee dreadnought already, and I'm going to figure out something different with the other one. Uh, I just, I'm really frustrated with it, so I had to put everything down today when when I was working on it this afternoon. And then um, I also had the wrong magnets again for my second Contemptor dreadnought, so it is shelved until I get the right magnets for that. And that has been so entirely frustrating that I'm just uh, cooling the jets for now. 
And that's uh, kind of what I've been working on. What about you guys? Yeah, so I've had kind of had to uh, to switch gears here from Heresy because I am actually in a couple of weeks going down to San Antonio for a uh, Age of Sigmar tournament. So I have been working on Fire Slayers. Um, I'm planning on bringing four Magma Droths uh, with me to that uh, to that tournament, which I have two painted, but I need to get the my second two painted. So I had to put the Heresy aside and uh and get those little angry naked dwarves and their big fire lizards done i tried to get a little more work done on my uh, 3d printing but i ran into a bit of a software problem i'm trying to run the 3d printer off a very old computer that is only 32 bit and i found out that i downloaded originally the files on a 64 bit system and then when i took it to the other site to try and uh you know convert those files into cura uh, it just crashed the system. So I'm going to have to try to upgrade that unit in order to get it to work. And I will admit that most of my other hobby time was uh, taken with reading in the last week, both Eisen's, Flight of Eisenstein and Fulgrim. So I uh, read those. And I, I had to go up to my, my library to find them. I did have them both and read them again. It's been many years since I've read these. It was good to go get back to them. So what was your retrospective like? Because like you said, it'd been a while. So what did you, how does Eisenstein hold up? And then what did you think of Fulgrim? Well, we'll get to Fulgrim as we go on, but what was your takeaway from Eisenstein? I was trying to put myself in the mindset of when the books were written and what sorts of things were going on in GW at the time. And I think that, so that's 2007. It still feels like those were some kind of some dark days for the hobby. I, I don't know that people were very happy with the where the company was going, and there was uh, there was some drama as there always is. But we had in the last five ten years, there's been kind of a it's been a much happier hobby place, and and I think that I don't know how much the books reflect that. But as I was going through, I was kind of thinking. Was any of this written to sell models? Was any of this written just to create some interesting characters? Um, I don't recall that, you know, Forge World was certainly selling a lot of stuff at the time, but it wasn't anywhere to the extent of what we've seen with the 30K releases officially in plastic. And so, and hopefully we'll get into that a little bit with some of the, the, the visions we see here. As far as a retrospective, it was good to get back to, the, to these stories. They were, I think, fairly simple. And uh, I'll be curious as we go through the series to see some of the newer novels, how they how they hold up to these old ones, because I think overall they were pretty good. I, I liked reading them. Awesome. Well, uh, with that note, before we uh, before we dive headfirst into Fulgrim, uh, we've got uh, some new releases that we want to talk about. Uh, the, the new the new Citadel tools that have just been announced and gone up on the site. Uh, for GW, um, so Warwick, I, I'm curious to get your your thoughts on these, and kind of well, run us through what they have here. Well, initially, I was super excited because I like collecting these kind of things. I always like having a new set of tools, and uh, I I text you about it, and I was like, "Hey, check out these these new tools. Uh, GW is doing a whole new line, and." Um, Maybe Legion Cash should do a tool. Uh, Legion Cash should do a tool review. Tool review, and you came back with about the best response. Which okay, yeah, that'll take five minutes. You can find all this stuff cheaper on Amazon. 
And after seeing the prices, I thought that was like a very, um, uh, a bit of let, a, let me be clear here. When I said that I had not yet seen the prices. So I wasn't just aware of so just how much cheaper you could find. It. I, I thought you were being a little acid with that, um, with that comment. And I was like, well, I'll at least look at them. But after seeing that the Clippers are $50, I said, no, 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 no way. And the, the, um, I've got like the, uh, all the old, I was actually using them today working on the dreadnoughts. I've got the, the first line of tools that have like the, uh, the metal handles and everything. I'm not sure what the handles are on these, but they look plastic in the pictures and they're more expensive than, uh, well, the um, the drill and the knife, I think, are about the same price. But the clippers are far too expensive to justify uh, not just getting something from your local hardware store or on Amazon. So GW is welcome to price stuff however they want. I think this is pretty boneheaded of them. I would like to see a review of just some plain old hobby tools that we could find at the local shop and see how they compare but the problem is i don't want to spend 150 bucks getting the gw ones right and i i I have a pair of orange handled clippers i got from a hobby store for maybe six bucks 20 years ago and they still work fine i've had to go through with a file and sharpen them a little bit because i tried to cut paper clips with them once but uh and the the knife blades i just like the flexibility of just getting a box cutter that i can replace the blades on as often as i need to for pennies so I guess it's filling a need I don't really have. Now, I will say that over the years, I've grown to appreciate their mold line remover. I've used that for a lot of different projects. I didn't think I'd like it, but I really do. Um, other than that, maybe the GW paint pot, I like that. But there are similar things on the market that you don't have to pay the, the brand for. Yeah, the, uh, uh, the mold line remover is really the only tool of theirs that I ever recommend anyone get. And that is because I have, I, you know, I used to clean my, my sprues up with, with an exacto knife and I just got tired of cutting my fingers with it. But I was even talking to some guys locally here and they're like, just use the back of the blade. So, you know, there's, there's definitely alternatives. And with that, with that knife that they have, I mean, I, I'm, exacto knife exactly like that with replacement blades is a dollar on amazon yeah the um the the drill i'm not super sold on i i've got one and i barely use it um i've had better luck with um like i i guess i'm very careful with the power drill and i've got some very fine bits for that but i've never needed the uh yeah the the drill i i have the old citadel drill um but i have a i have a chinese probably Chinese made pin vice. What I liked about the old Citadel drill is the bits, not the actual drill itself. That, that's a problem I've had is finding good bits for it. Um, I, I, I've got a bunch of different pin vices, little hobby tip. I had one that squeaked really bad when I spun it to the point where I didn't want to use it, but I realized I could put a little drop of three in one oil on that and it solved the squeak. So hobby tip for the day. Well, um, that's about all, I guess, uh, the second wave of Votan stuff is coming out as far as new releases go for me. Did you guys get that Proteus yet? I have not picked one up yet. I'll probably try and find one this week. I know I dropped it in the group chat, but I got two. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll probably get a couple to make one of each of the variants, but probably not for this 
Alpha Legion Army, probably for something else. Maybe yeah, for a diorama. Know, that's, that's actually something I'm trying to decide right now is do I want to keep one for when I start Traitor Legion? And I think I'm actually just going to build two of the Proteus variant for Dark Angels. This, and that brings up an interesting point. This would be the first time I've ever bought all the... I've made the army list first and then bought all the pieces I wanted. Whereas every other army I've, I've ever played, I just buy the things that look cool. Then when I realize I've got a game coming up, I try to make a list that works and it's not very effective. <laughs> so this is the first time I've actually made the list and then and then bought the models. That's the problem I ran into trying to build a list for this weekend that I thought would work. I did not have the models put together that I would want to take against Alpha Legion. So I spent uh, I spent most of the weekend putting that stuff together instead of actually getting a game in. So that's I, I fall into the same the same trap you do. I just I keep wanting to build the cool stuff, not actually building the list stuff. You know. Yeah. See, I solved this problem by buying way too much crap, and then you know when you have spares of everything, you then just sending, put together what you need. Sending me an entire box of Space Wolves one summer, and then like, then like a year later being like, hey, I need that back, and then selling it. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like something I would do. I've lived it. All right, I'm feeling attacked. Let's get to the book. Yeah, let's do that. everybody to legion cast we're going to be getting into our book section here and starting part one of our fulgrim review so i uh i really enjoy this one um i don't know about you guys here but uh it's it's one of my favorites it is definitely one of the ones that i feel is like the beefiest um as far as those early books go but it is also kind of capping off this first these first real opening moves of the heresy and we're getting a good idea of kind of where the players are. So this definitely does feel beefy, like you said, but that's because we had three books kind of uh, going over Horus's fall to chaos, and that that took, like I said, three whole books. They kind of cram Fulgrim all into one, which it, it works really well. It's a great book, but I think it's really interesting how they're able to compress or how uh, Graham McNeil is able to compress all that into one book where it took us three to kind of catalog how uh, the, the Luna Wolves or the Sons of Horus actually uh, felt chaos. As the book starts off, we see that the artists make a very large contribution to the story. We're going to see these characters all through the book. And it's not lost on me that this hobby is made up of a lot of artists. Right in the GW universe, you have a lot of sculptors, painters, and storytellers. The, the hobby is very in- inclusive of all those things, and it's interesting to think about this from the terms of what is this? What, what are these? Who are these characters supposed to be? And you guys have been in the hobby for a few years now. Have you ever considered yourself as you're working on one of these models an actual artist? Mm, it's really hard for me to say that I am an artist. I am a um, pretty mediocre painter at best. And like our, our oldest brother went to art school and I think our brother-in-law went to art school too. Um, 
even though they're not in the art industry, I think that they're far more qualified to call themselves artists than we are. I don't know that you need to go to school to be an artist, though. Yeah, I I disagree. It's not the formal education that I'm driving at. It is the uh, the willingness to make it one's life work. This is my amateur hobby. This is not my lifelong passion. Yeah, see, I completely disagree. I think that, to me, the fundamental qualification for are you an artist is it really comes down to how you measure your work. And if all you're doing is trying to paint that many better than the last one you painted, I think you are an artist. Um, I think that art is in the eye of the beholder. Um, that might seem a little bit sappy, but I think that uh, everything, I think everybody who, who takes part in this hobby from person putting paint on the model for the first time to, you know, those guys winning golden demon. Um, as long as you're painting a model, even building a model, you know, art isn't just painting the model. You know, I've seen some amazing conversions but I, I told I believe that uh, that the miniature game is art. But that that question runs all the way through the book: is what is art and what effect does it have on our lives? The scene later in the book where Fulgrim is confronting Ostian about his pe- quest towards perfection, you know that you can look in some of the um, white dwarfs or other places and see a model that is absolutely perfect, but then you'll see some rough conversion some guy did with a kind of mediocre paint job, but there's something about it that kind of piques your interest and says, you know what? That is the one that speaks to me. That's the one that I want to do. And what is, what is art in this hobby? And this is the question that when Fulgrim is on this quest to perfection, uh, can we ruin our hobby by trying to be so perfect that we never do anything that's good? Yeah. Well, and you know, I would even push back on that, that guy who painted that perfect model in the white dwarf, I guarantee you he sees every single little thing that's wrong with that model. Um, you guys have seen my, my Archeon. Um, it's, it's one of the models I'm most proud of. It's, you know, the first model of that size that I painted and it was all by brush. There was no airbrush involved. Um, not to discount airbrush. It's a great tool, but, um, it's something that I'm really proud of. And I've gotten a lot of compliments. I actually won a painting competition with it, but all I see when I look at it is that I splotch the dry brush on one of his wings. So I, and I think we all do that. So I know that, uh, you, you had asked me to paint a few bloodthirsters for you a few years ago, and you've told me that you've gotten a lot of compliments on them. I, I obviously wasn't there for it because you live far away, but, um, you've always told me that I did a really good job on those, but I'm the same way. It's just like, I could have done a lot better on, on a few of those things. Like uh, the one I did some blending on the wings that I'm really not happy with, but you've always told me they're fine or they're good, whatever. But I guess I, I am always obsessive about picking up all the things I didn't do good enough. So you're just like Fulgrim then. I only in that regard. In no other way could I be considered like Fulgrim. Oh, yeah, that's sticking. So let's talk about the layer then. What do you guys think of these layer? I think that they're a really interesting design as far as Xenos go. And I know I brought this up when you and I were hanging out, but there's a really neat parallel between how the layer uh, modify themselves and how the Yorgle from Flight of the Eisenstein uh, modified themselves as well. Well, they're vastly different races, but there are several different variations of the layer. They focus on a lot of body modification. 
they have uh, several specialized variants, and they are incredibly deadly. The lair well, is on, far on as... On that note, why don't we go ahead and jump in and have you lead off here with the book, and then we can start really talking about these guys. So the book does start off with a couple of remembrancers. We have uh, Serena D'Angelos, who is a painter, and she was referenced in... I can't remember if it was Flight of the Eisenstein or Galaxy and I think it was Galaxy and Flames because she had been painting portraits of Lucius. And the other uh, remembrancer is Ostian Delafour, who is a sculptor, and he is one of the very best. And he's got enough influence, he was able to procure very like a very rare block of marble to work with, who uh, Fulgrim himself had to ask the Emperor for. So that's kind of where the um, the influence stacks up on these artists. Now, they are conversing, uh, you know, they're talking about artist mumbo-jumbo. Um, I'm not sure how philosophical it gets, but um, the, uh, the, the backdrop of this is this setting aboard the Emperor's Children flagship called, uh, this, this room is called La Fenice, and it is where all the remembrancers come together and hang out. And unlike the uh, 63rd expedition with the Luna Wolves, who kind of like were very hesitant about having remembrancers on board, Fulgrim dives in head first and invites all of the very best. So uh, there's a, a very wide variety of these incredibly talented people. There is um, Coralina Seneca, who is a uh, theatrical performer. There is Serena D'Angelis, who's the painter, and this woman, Bekwa Kinska, who plays a pretty significant part later on, who is this somewhat uh, eccentric, very um, demanding in perfection composer and harm, uh, harm, harmonist, uh, who is set to be writing these incredible um, musical numbers. And she is so demanding in her performance. Early on, we see uh, she's performing and a army general uh, starts speaking during her performance and she stops the whole thing and will not play anymore until Fulgrim himself steps forward and asks her to play again. So that kind of sets the backdrop for the influence that these uh, remembrancers have. But Brandon, take it away. Yeah, and you know, I think it uh, it kind of shows that as far as remembrancers go, the twenty eighth expedition, Fulgrim's Legion, is is where you want to be. This is you know, Fulgrim is all about the arts. Um, you know, we see there's varying levels of acceptance among the among the sixty third expedition of these remembrancers. We don't even get into um, ones that would be downright hostile, like you know, the World Eaters or something like that. Um, but they, I mean, they just have free reign. They go everywhere there. It even talks about Serena D'Angelis is doing a, is doing a portrait of the Primarch, but to, to get back to what you're saying with, uh, with Beck Wakinska, it talk and it even talks about that. Her, her music is amazing. It's incredible. And like Ostian is, thinks that she's kind of a stuck up bitch, uh, to be frank. Uh, but he hears her music and he's like, I, I, I get it now. This woman is a genius. Um, but we see a little bit about the wider uh, 30K, 40K universe in there where she admits that she's engaged in rejuvenate treatments and she's probably significantly older than she appears. 
And this is something that figures in a lot of characters in 40K that might be hundreds of years old, but are being kept alive longer than they ought to be. And there's little glimpses where you kind of find out that this is a, a much older thing or person than it first lets on. So not everything is as it appears. Dan Abnett does a really good descriptor in Prospero Burns, a book later on in the series, where um, the main character is talking to one of these um, imperial officials that is impossibly old. And there's this very unnerving aspect about them because there's... It's it's very difficult to explain, but I think Dan Abbott does a really good job saying that he's got this he's this incredibly old and decrepit man, but he has this like this teenager's hand, like even though it's all liver spotted and stuff, it looks like a teenager's hand. It is very disturbing to think about for me. Yeah, yeah. There's some uh, there's some interesting things like that, and uh, you know you kind of get the idea in your mind though of uh, this is you know a woman who was a prodigy who, um, you know, we see it in our own celebrity culture of, you know, these women who they're just through through surgeries, trying desperately to hold on to their youth. Um, but she stops this whole performance and is yelling at, uh, at this army general, um, an aristocrat who's like, do you have any idea who I am? And she's like, I don't care. I am Beck Wakinska. I am a genius. And you're here to see me. But uh, at that point, we hear this, uh, this, this beautiful voice from the back that says, uh, play for me, and it's Fulgrim. Um, and that's kind of how we're introduced to uh, Fulgrim in the book, which I think is a very fitting way. It gives us a lot of insight into who he is. He's someone who would show up, despite the fact that they're about to engage on this campaign, someone who shows up to you know, uh, a orchestral performance. So... Let's see. From there, we do get um, a cut. I think that's where we cut away to Solomon Demeter, who is the captain of the second company of the Emperor's Children. And he is a, a good parallel to have because we get his perspective of what goes on with the Emperor's Children. Well, uh, Saul Tarvitz and Lucius are off with the 63rd expedition on murder. Now, while the 63rd are off fighting bugs on in Spiderland, uh, the Emperor's children are engaged in a campaign against a deadly alien species called the Lair. They have long snake-like bodies. They have multiple limbs. They make different variants of themselves. They modify themselves with all sorts of uh, uh, additional organs and uh, uh, biomechanical interfaces, stuff like that. And they have been hostile to the human race right off the bat. There have been no communications. And we see a lot of this in 30K where uh, humanity shows up and the, the, the residents are angry about it. So that's basically what happens. Now, Fulgrim has said, you know, they got to go. We're, we're not having it. And they have this, it's a really interesting world they have to fight over that offers some very strange tactical challenges. The world itself is flooded, but there are these floating atolls that that float above the water made out of coral. And there are some sort of machines on them that, that hold them aloft above the water. And of course, the Mechanicum wants to take a look at these devices to see how they are able to stay aloft. But because there's no large landmass to land on 
they've got to take one first, and then they can uh, land a much larger force on that to take the rest of the atolls. So that's where the scene with Captain Demeter comes in, because the second company has been tasked with securing this beachhead for the rest of the uh, landing part for the for the rest of the army. And Demeter has a pretty solid success, and we see a a pretty neat scene of him where he is a very model soldier. He is the um, the ideal of well. I don't want to say perfection, but he is, he's definitely somebody you want on your side. He's very successful. He's got, um, war gear that is very tailored to himself. He's modified his own bolter. He's modified his own chainsword. Uh, and it has made him, these little aspects all kind of fall into one and make this incredible soldier that, you know, everybody respects, everybody likes. Yeah, do you guys want to talk about the perfection thing now? Uh, because I think it's going to be, it, it's important for the entirety of the book that we talk about this idea of perfection, and it's very philosophical. Um, and I think that a lot of what you see with the Emperor's children is that Fulgrim says that we're meant to be the perfect warriors, but what does that actually mean? And it means something different to every one of the characters that we come into contact with and that gives a pretty good insight of how they're going to be when when all the thing when all the chips fall and the heresies unveil um so i'm curious if you guys going to kind of get into that that kind of deeper right. conversation now so i feel like we've we've seen uh so with salt harvitz he is very much a model of if i follow all the orders and i do them as efficiently as possible i will be perfect and Lucius is kind of the flip side of that. If I am the best swordsman ever, I will be perfect. I think Solomon Demeter is very much, if I accomplish my task as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible, I will be perfect. So we do see this theme of some of the Emperor's children as um, they're appro approaching this idea of perfection kind of their own way. I think um, Lord Commander Eidolon is of the of the notion, if no one knows I'm a screw-up, I will be perfect. What do you guys think? I, I actually disagree about that with Eidolon. I don't think he sees himself as a screw-up at all. <laughs> no, I, I really don't. I think he's no, that you, arrogant. You're right, but he will, as we see later on in the book, he will lie and manipulate so that no one has a false image of him. That's fair, yeah. Part of their drive for perfection comes from the beginnings of the Legion. <clears throat> that Fulgrim grew up on this planet, Chemos. And when he was finally reunited with the Legion, there were only 200 Battle Brothers. There was some sort of accident that affected their gene seed early on. And so instead of being reunited with thousands of resplendent warriors, there were only 200. And he was seconded to the Luna Wolves with Horus to until their numbers could be brought up to the point where he could function on his own. So he's always kind of playing second fiddle to his big older brothers, and that changes his whole outlook. Yeah, and that idea of the of the perf perfect perfection is also built through the Legion because of that before Fulgrim arrives, and that there are so few of them that they can't afford to die. Um, so that idea of we have to execute war perfectly 
it kind of comes from both ends. It's, it's, it's pretty cool to, to see. And it talks about that a bit in the beginning of the book. Um, but I think that that's, that's one of Fulgrim's kind of major downfalls is that he, his, he teaches his legion, you need to strive for perfection in everything. But then he doesn't explain what that actually is. Um, and we get this kind of duality of, you know, of human nature, really, um, which I'm excited to get into, like, the philosophical parts of this this book. But of, you know, humans are naturally imperfect, you know, we, we are designed imperfectly um, by a perfect being, but we're designed to be imperfect. So that you it's unachievable. So there's. There's a line later on in the book where Fulgrim is talking to Horus and, you know, Fulgrim comes to term with what comes to terms with what is happening. And he says, I had imagined myself to be his perfect warrior and to stand beside him just as he is. Now, back in the first book, there's a line where Tarek Torgadon is talking to Saltarvitz that the Emperor's children should strive towards the Emperor's perfection, but never assume to match his supremacy. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I mean, if we really want to get deep into it, I don't think the Emperor's perfect. Um, but, uh, oh, I see, I see the wide eyes. That sounds like heresy from you guys. No, that's the take on perfection is interesting because... It, we have this in our in our society. We have an understanding of human beings, and we also have an understanding of angels, right? So if you read your scripture, you know that uh, angels are God's messengers, and they are perfect extensions of his will. And for if you uh, don't have a religious background, bear with me here. We have to have an understanding of what human will is versus angelic will. So human will is 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 human will. It, it can change. You make a decision one day, you know, this is my favorite color, but tomorrow you could change that. You could do something bad, but then later you could say you're sorry. Even in our own mythology and in our culture, we understand that the angels, though, can only make one choice. And they either choose to follow God or they choose to go their own way. And once they do that, because they have this, this perfect will, they cannot change their minds. And we see this happening in... Uh, that reflected in the in, in the story where you're leading up to this one singular choice that cannot be taken back in 40k there is no redemption arc once you damn yourself that is it and so that is where perfection lies if you really want to be perfect you have to understand what the consequences of that perfect will or that perfect choice is because then you're done the imperfection allows you to go back and say maybe i'll take another crack at it you know i'm really sorry fellas let me try something different but with the Primarchs, they're angelic beings. They can't do that. Once they fall, they fall hard and forever. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at it. And, you know, I hadn't really thought of it from Fulgrim's perspective specifically. I've always kind of looked at it more from his warriors, because that's who we spend some time with uh, with Fulgrim in this book. But that's who I really kind of, you know, draw more parallel with. And It falls kind to of, them too, though. Yeah. They well, share it, his there's, will. There, there's kind of two different purveying ideas uh, that Warwick kind of got into. There's that Lucius idea of I can, I can be physically perfect. Um, or there is the Saul Tarvitz, Solomon Demeter idea of perfection is an ideal to make me do better every time that I do something. 
Um, and based on how these guys view that, um, it, it really shows where they're going to come down. So, uh, Warwick, do you want to you want to keep uh, keep us going with uh, with the taking of the atoll? Right. So, um, right. So we, we see a pretty big insight into who Solomon Demeter is, his kind of his conduct in war, how he operates uh, as a soldier on an individual le- level. He has taken extra st- steps to make sure his war gear is perfect. Uh, he's got a strategy amongst himself and his men of uh, what they call going up the center, which may seem like a, uh, a brash or reckless uh, strategy to others, but he trusts his uh, battle brothers so wholly that he knows he can go up the center and be supported. So it, uh, I think that that plays into his idea of per- per- perfection that they have the perfect teamwork, so to speak. Did you guys kind of come away with that too? What did you think? Yeah, but uh, again, it comes down to this idea of what perfection is. Is their idea of perfection is that we, you know we've executed this maneuver so many times that it just goes off, you know, muscle memory functionally, um, right. you know, and when things go wrong, we have again we've encountered these things before and we've trained this maneuver so many times that we can react to that so when we see like for example when he's trying to uh to his company is trying to signal to the third company of marius verosian where they are um that you know they, they they can't get any vox communication through so they just blow up a tower and they say hey that's that's a good way to show where we are um but uh, so then we uh, through through that and through this battle we meet uh, we meet the second and third captains Solomon Demeter and Marius Verosian who are pretty different guys uh, particularly after the fight for Laren. Right. So the taking of the first atoll goes off pretty well without a hitch. Um, all of our our characters so far have survived. Um. Moving on to that, the Emperor's children can start gaining a foothold on Laren and taking these other atolls. They kind of go about this procedurally, but then they they kind of map out the whole planet and how these atolls are positioned and are moving. And there's one that is uh, it is strange in its uh, location or its uh, its part in the kind of circuit. And everybody looks at it. They're not really sure what it is, uh, what it's doing in this position. Fulgrim takes one look at it and goes, oh, well, that's a temple. So uh, we get this this scene as Solomon Demeter and his company are making planet fall. They're in a, are they in a stormbird or are they in drop pods? I can't remember now. Well, before we before we go to the the last atoll, let's go back up to the fleet to the the war council. So while the while the second and third are engaged, um, Fulgrim has this war council in what he calls the Heliopolis. Which to me, I get this like Greek or Roman theater aesthetic from it. I don't know about you guys, um, but that's kind of the way it's described. That's what it makes me think of. But uh, Fulgrim comes in there. And he's got, you know, his his army commander, Lord Commander File, is like, you've already started this campaign, you didn't consult us. And he's like, oh no, I just sent a recon by force, which is a real thing in, in military tactics. Um, but the idea being that he, he really just, it the scene showcases how much of an orator 
that Fulgrim is, that he's just immediately able to, this, this Lord Commander of the Imperial Army just walks into everything that Fulgrim lays for him to get exactly what he wants. And he ends up uh, commanding his first captain, Julius Caesaron, to go ahead and take the world in a month, which is quite an ask, considering that the estimates were for this to take several years. Yeah, so then they, they push on to the temple, and this is where something very interesting happens. And as a question I asked Work the other day, these layer that they're fighting are pretty clearly worshippers of one of these chaos gods, right? That seems to be tailor-made to tempt the emperor's children onto this dark path. Did they get there by accident? Was this a machination of the ruinous powers? Uh, why do you think they, of all places, ended up at this temple that seemed to coincide so closely with their eventual fall? I'm, I'm of a mind to think machinations on behalf of the Dark Gods. I don't recall if the expeditionary fleet was sent there by the War Master or not. Because at this point in time, Horus would have been either on or near Davin, facing his uh, his ordeal in the um, the House of Healing. No, well, so we know when that happens, actually. That happens much later in the book, uh, because we get to see it through another character's eyes, um, through the Eldar, when it hap- when the da- when Davin happens. So I, I, I don't want to say that it's not possible that it was a machination of the Dark Gods to, to make, to place this, you know, in their path. They're known to make plans for that don't come to fruition for tens of thousands of years. But I, it was not, I, I would say that it was not Horus who, you know, with some malevolent intent sent the emperor's children here. I don't think, I don't think the book tries to say that. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that can really be drawn. So work, what do they find in this temple? I want to know. Well, it's important to note that uh, in the landing for the to take this temple atoll, Solomon Demeter's uh, landing vehicle is shot down and he doesn't make it there. But uh, Julius Caesaron, uh, first captain, and Marius Ferozian, third captain, both make it there. And Marius they, doesn't make it. I thought Marius was there. He doesn't make it to the temple. He makes okay. it onto the atoll. But oh, but he, he doesn't. Late. Right. So... Julius Caesaron uh, fights his way through and he makes it through some very heavy resistance until suddenly there's none. And they come into this very uh, disturbing scene of the lair um, intertwined in this kind of um, like uh, orgy ceremony or something like say, that. Let's call it what it is. Snake orgy. Snake orgy. So... Uh, this is something we see quite often in 40k that this is very similar to a lot of the Slanesh rit- rituals that we come across in the, the 40k era. So right off the bat, you know, any of the 40k veterans are like, oh, we know exactly what this is. And in the center of this big temple, we see that they're kind of worshiping this giant silver sword. Now, Julius Caesaron and Fulgrim are both there, and Fulgrim just strides strides through all these coiled up snakes, 
and picks up this giant silver sword as though it was made for his hand. Yeah, and, you know, I really gotta wonder what he was thinking here. Um, Because, I mean, we know from reading the book what's going on with the sword. But he doesn't know it, but he's a Primarch. So he can't have fallen under this thing's influence that fast to me. And he should know that the the Emperor has said, don't touch Zeno stuff. We do know, however, that... um... Like, uh, Mortarion's death scythe, death scythe has a very ambiguous background. It's said to be of Xenos origin sometimes. And we know that despite his need for per- perfection, Lucius will not hesitate to pick up a alien blade and just test it out, so to speak. So I can see Fulgrim's vanity being enamored with something shiny for a little bit and then picking it up. And then I think just the act of coming into contact with something like this, especially as we see later on how subtle this entity is, that it is more than capable of kind of subverting some of your um, inhibitions, so to speak. So, yeah, I think it's weird that Fulgrim would just pick up an alien weapon. I don't think it's completely out of character. Also keep in mind what's going on in the temple other than the, the snakes writhing around. There's also this soporific musk that is in the air that's kind of deadening everybody's senses. But then there's also this loud blaring music and these riotous colors and all these things that are clouding the judgment of anybody who's in there. We see that later with the remembrancers and the artists who come in. They're completely overwhelmed by what they see. So maybe it just pushed Fulgrim's head just a little bit over the edge in order for him to pick this thing up when he saw how beautiful it was. And of course, they kill everybody else in the in the temple when he once he does so. How many problems could have been avoided if he had said, "That's gross, snaky Zeno stuff." Yeah, it um, it it is pretty curious. I think Maniple makes a really good point. There's a lot going on in this scene, um, and I'm I'm still very, very much convinced that there's a lot of subversion going on here by uh, a character that that is in the picture, but we have not seen yet. So the conquest of Laren pretty well goes off without a hitch, we think. And we then cut to a scene. Well, not quite without a hitch. They take massive casualties. Uh, it, it does talk about how heavily they pay to take this planet in a month. Uh, but one of the things that does come out of it as well is that one of our characters uh, that we meet, Apothecary Fabius, who we've met very, very briefly for uh, time before, he's very busy with taking care of the Legion. But one of the things he noticed in, is that the Emperor's children, they, they'll dissect Xeno forms. They're not like some of the other Legions, that they're like Xenos, gross, kill it, and that's it. Um, they, they want to learn how the best and most perfect ways to kill these creatures are. So they'll dissect them. Right. So what Fabius finds out while he's taking apart some of these lair is that they are tailor making uh, certain variants for different tasks. You know, laborers, guys that swim, guys that fly, warrior variants, you know, melee variants, range variants, stuff like that. And so he calls in Fulgrim into his um, his study or his laboratory and says, hey, I think that I can apply some of this gross Xeno stuff to ourselves and make ourselves better or even more perfect. And initially Fulgrim says, 
that's gross. Why would you tell me that? Absolutely not. But Fabius turns out to be uh, pretty convincing in that, you know, if I can apply this um, uh, this organ to the Betcher's gland, I can give us, you know, uh, even better um, uh, acidic saliva or whatever. And, you know, we see that later on with, you know, what happens to Eidolon. It was for the the, the sonic scream. The Betcher's gland was modified to do the psychic scream. Okay. Uh, yeah, I could not remember that. I'm sorry, sonic scream. Um, I couldn't remember if it was the Betcher's gland or if it was the, the multi-lung. But it's it it doesn't matter. Nope. Anyway. It, it was the Betcher's gland. Yep. Right. But yeah, and, and it talks about how the layer, how their combat variants and such, they've rewired their brains so that when they, instead of feeling pain, they always feel pleasure. Um, which if you think about it purely from an from an academic perspective, wouldn't that be great for your warriors to have in that they don't feel pain? Like it feels good to get hurt to them so that they'll, rather than stopping, it'll, they'll just keep going. Obviously we know that the pain reflex exists to know that you're doing something wrong, but I can see, I can see where the thought process was here uh, to, to make, to start conducting these experiments. Right. It was purely for the advancement of the Legion. But as we see later on, they crank that up to 11 and take it way too far. Yeah, we definitely see how, how these experiments get out of hand pretty quickly. And then... Uh, I, I think that really has to do with the, uh, the obsessive nature of some of the Emperor's children, especially somebody like Fabius. He is very much concerned with perfecting his trade. And being the chief chief apothecary of the emperor's children, he might very well see it see it as his duty to do this to the best of his ability, and that eventually means he takes it too far. Now, before we finish this section on what happens to the Lair Temple, I think it's fair to also talk about the whole notion of these books as a as a mythology. And if you look at any ancient mythologies, there's usually some kind of a love story. There's a conflict between brothers or friends or something that revolves around some uh, some temptation, usually because of a woman. Uh, you'll look at look at some of the uh, the stories around King Arthur's court, for instance, and there are others. In the role of the primarchs, though, and the emperor, there's not a lot of ladies around, are there? Uh, <laughs> not many at all. And so, the role of the temptress is in the in this new mythology is played by, by chaos itself. You've got, and pretty soon we're going to see these two brothers with the Gorgon and the Phoenix who come together, and you find that there's going to be something that comes between them, and it's this temptation that, that Fulgrim is chasing after. And this represents that, that thing that you really, really want, but you know you shouldn't, and it's going to affect your relationship with all of your friends and your brothers, but uh, am I going to do it anyway? And so this sets up this huge morality tale about what's going on between the, the Primarchs with chaos in the middle causing all this little chaos. And that's where you have a story. Yeah, it's very well put. Yeah, um, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I, I, I had not thought of it like that until you brought it up the other day. And you actually brought up uh, a couple of really things that, that kind of bent my brain about this whole story uh, when we were hanging out this past weekend. Um, stuff that, uh, a couple of things that we'll get into later, but I had kind of written off or overlooked, but you brought it up and it made me look at it in a whole new light. So that was... Oh, because 
because there's a, this book drops a couple of very interesting prophecies that I didn't remember reading the first time around, but I marked them. So when we get there, I'll bring, I'll bring them up. Yeah, definitely do that. So uh, do you guys think we're wrapped up the Lair Temple? Do you think well, we're uh, there, there's one finishing arc of this, and that is that the Remembrancers are allowed to go. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and most of them do, all except for uh, Austin Delafort, who is denied his chance to go. Uh, he's denied his chance to go because uh, we saw in a brief scene that uh, Beck Wakinska made a pass at him and he declined, um, which angered her greatly. And so she pulled the strings of influence that she had to make him not go, um, which at the end of the day, what happens to him is still horrible, but the slow descent into madness from being in this temple that we see in everyone else, you're kind of happy somebody got spared from it. It's, it's kind of a, a horror show that starts to develop after that, that layer temple. And it just bit by bit, Graham McNeil does a really good job of showing that slow descent into madness of everybody who was there. It's, it's one of the things that I love most about Fulgrim. And um, you know, guys, you guys have both read Lovecraft. I have as well. And there's just this, Lovecraft, that no one writes horror like him, obviously. But there's this thing that he does where he just builds this sense of dread in you as you read. And you, you really feel that in this descent into madness that you see from these remembrancers throughout. So what we see with a lot of the re, uh, remembrancers is this absolute obsession. And that is one of the main driving forces with all things concerning Slanesh. Slanesh isn't about, you know, the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll. It is about more, 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 more. So what we see with um, Serena DeAngelos is that she goes into this temple and sees all these riotous colors and this, you know, this, uh, this plethora of light that y- y- she has never really understood or seen before. So when she gets back on board the ship or in, into her studio, she's trying to recreate that. Beck Wakinska is taking recordings of the, the sounds coming through the Lair Temple because the Empress Shelter hadn't destroyed all the speakers yet. So she's trying to recreate this, this, uh, this harmony that is going out through the, the temple. And we see that with a, a few other uh, remembrancers that go down there, and that all manifests near the end of the story. And it, um, it, it really makes you uh, dread, like, coming into contact or dread the obsession that they have. Yeah. I think this, this really slanishy idea of more, 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 I think we see it best in my opinion, in Julius Caseron, um, who goes, who goes into the temple and then actually goes back with the remembrancers because he says, I want to get this feeling again. Uh, but him trying to find this feeling of excess functionally again, I think it, it's a really great picture painted um, through through his character arc as well. Um, but perhaps uh, I think we can wrap up the the layer there, um, and maybe we can jump in, uh, start heading towards the the diasporex where we get introduced to a whole new legion, which I'm really excited about, particularly to have Manipul here because he plays this legion, the Iron Hands. Yes, indeed, and. I think we have a, a good introduction to these characters. First, the you get the in, in chapter six, it starts with this uh, 
Iron Hand's ship chasing the Diasporex. And the Diasporex are these this loose affiliation of humans and Xenos who worked together and fly together. And they've been leading the Iron Hand's fleet on a, uh, a chase around the solar system, and they can never seem to bring them to, to heal or bring them to battle. And so the Diasporex lay a trap for the Iron Hand's ship, and uh, this is the, the ship, the Ferrum. And the Ferrum gets uh, stuck with this ambush, and now Ferris Manus, deter- he's the, the Primarch of the Iron Hands, determines that the only way they're going to catch the Diasporex is if they ask for help. And who do they ask for help from? His good friend Fulgrim and his legion. Well, and I, I love this, this scene of this conversation he has in his kind of war council chamber uh, with the rest of his, um, his legion in that we see that the iron hands are also on their own pursuit towards perfection, but it looks very different. And I think this conversation is really key into where these two things are. These two legions really diverge in this idea of perfection and that Ferris Manus talks about, it's not imperfect to ask for help. In fact, it is the perfect decision to recognize when you are outmatched and therefore bring the odds to bear that are play, place things in your favor. The Emperor's children, from what we've seen and what we'll continue to see, would never come to that conclusion. Right, so Ferris just says that little tiny bit of humility that allows him to seek a better path. Fulgrim doesn't appear to have that. If if because he he's mistaking uh, perf- perfection for pride, what he really has is pride, and pride is this is this ultimate killer in, in a lot of mythological stories. There's a it's one of the a, seven a, deadly sins too. There's a good line in Horus Rising that gets repeated here by it might be Ferris Manus himself. I can't remember. But Tarek Torgadon tells Saul Tarvitz, there is no purity in pride, nothing perfect about arrogance and overconfidence. And that gets echoed here when um, when the Iron Hands basically say, you know, as you have already stated, that, you know, it's the right decision to ask for help when the Emperor's children would never do that. Now, if there's, if there's one scene that stuck out from this book from the first time around, it was early on in Chapter 6 where we hear the story of how Fulgrim and Ferris Manus got their two weapons. Can I talk about that for a second? Yeah, absolutely. So they did not know each other very well, and they they somehow met at this forge under the Ural Mountains. And they they did have some kind of bond early on, but they had kind of a bet where they they were one of them was going to build a better weapon than the other. And uh, Ferris said that Fulgrim with his pasty hands could never be the equal of his metal ones. If you don't know anything about Ferris Manus, you should know that on his world where he grew up on Medusa, he fought some sort of a silver dragon and killed it by holding it in the lava stream. And the lava stream melted this silver dragon and the liquid metal of its body covered his arms. So now Ferris Manus, his forearms are made of this living metal. Do you off off topic here, but do you think that was a shard of the void dragon? I think it would be enough to say it was just some sort of Necron construct. 
I don't think it needs to be a, a Catan or a or a shard of the of, of the dragon. I think it'd just be a, you know so, something that happened with the living Necron tier metal that would have done the same thing. See, just based on his um, based on his legion and the path that they end up taking, I I do believe that it actually was a shard of the void dragon. I'm inclined to agree because they're they're very much influenced in the same way that the Tech Priests of Mars are. It's interesting. Now, this is provides me because so anyway, Fulgrim and Ferris they sit under this mountain and they take time to build each other. Well, they build themselves a weapon. When it's all done, they look at the other guy's weapon and say, "You've made a better one than I did," and they end up exchanging them. And so Fulgrim ends up with this silver, with this uh, fiery sword that Ferris Manus made with his own hands, and then Ferris Manus ends up with the with the big hammer and the big hammer is called is it forge breaker forge breaker now when i read that i remembered a book i read in high school about british myth and british mythology and i seem to remember something about this and even in the book it notes that fulgrim had declared the golden sword the equal of that borne by the legendary hero nawada silverhand do you guys know who Nawada Silverhand is? Well, in other places in the in the fluff, we we hear that the iron the iron hands are taken from Terran stock, mostly from Old Albion. Old Albion would be the British Isles, or what's left of them. And one of the stories of the British Isles are of these these various groups of people that invaded over time. One of them being the Tuatha de Danon. And if there's any British folks who are listening, I apologize for any of my pronunciations. I'm doing the best I can with these. But Nawada was king of the Tuatha de Danon. And during a, one of his fights, he lost an arm. And do you know what they did to replace his arm later on? He had a very skilled smith make him a silver one. And he had a silver arm. And he had a very famous sword, and the sword would eventually become one of the the great treasures of of the British Isles. And it was this this amazing silver sword. To further it, eventually Nawada was killed by a Fomorian named Baylor. And do you know how Baylor killed him? How's that? Cut, cut his head off. Oh, foreshadowing. A little foreshadowing. So this is a good reminder to anybody reading these books is that the authors will often go back and take an ancient myth and then fast forward it 40,000 years to show how this would be retold in the 40K universe. And it's it's interesting to, to look for those little Easter eggs all through these books to say, you know what, that reminds me of, an, of another mythological character. And these authors don't put anything in by accident. So when you see those little words like Nawada Silverhand, do do a little search and see if there's something that will foreshadow the story you're in. It's, I think it's fascinating to go through these books and find those. That, yeah, that's really cool. I had no idea. Yeah, I I usually think to myself I should look that up, but then I move on to something else pretty quickly. I'm just I'm too uh, too ADD to to look into that kind of thing. Well, that, well, that's why we have a podcast to go deeper into these yeah. uh, it, little things. I really appreciate you coming on for this one. And, and so, Warwick was all worried that we weren't going to hit a full episode in half this book. 
<laughs> yeah, um, we. I, I thought that, that the um, the Lair Temple and the Diasporics were going to go quickly, but I was wrong. So we do move on to a, a little war council between the Iron Hands and the Emperor's Children. And the Iron Hands are kind of sharing their tactical data, and they're like, look, we've tried everything. There's no way we can pin these guys down. And Fulgrim's just like, well, if you can't pin them down, why haven't they just left? And the Iron Hands are just like, what? And Julius Caesaron is like, wait, do they have fuel? And so Fulgrim's like, obviously they're trying to stockpile fuel so they can jump out of here. They must have like solar collectors hidden near the sun's corona or something like that. And so um, the Iron Hands start sending out um, scout ships to try and locate the solar collectors and maybe try to pin down the Diasporic's fleet. Because so far... Anytime an Iron Hands fleet or ship has come into contact with the Diasporics vessel, the Diasporics just turn tail and run. They're, they're always out of there before Imperial ships can catch up to them. So now the Emperor's Children have suggested a strategy of, we just need to go to where we know they're going to be. Which, thus far, the Iron Hands hadn't been able to pin down because they didn't imagine that anyone in the 41st millennia would be using solar collectors to gather fuel for starships. It seems a bit antiquated, maybe, but maybe that's just how the diasporics work. I don't know. You know, I, I kind of, I kind of love it though, because after um, Flight of the Eisenstein, the way that they get away from the Terminus Est is to slingshot around that small moon, which nobody had thought of to use a gravity well because they they don't need to anymore. So hearing about right. that kind of antiquated space. Uh, technology it's just kind of a fun drawback there yeah i i had a yeah that was it's certainly fun to uh hear how these very advanced fleets and tacticians are kind of struggling against these kind of older uh methods uh of either warfare or logistics it's not the kind of thing that an Imperial fleet wouldn't think about storing or like having to build up a fuel supply because they have supply fleets for that kind of thing. Right. So anyway, the, uh, the Ferrum is back on scene and the captain of that ship is captain Balhan. And after his humiliation in this little, the trap he was in, he has been saddled with an iron father and an Iron Father is kind of a dis- discipline master, kind of a tech priest. He's he's a mix of a few different things, uh, a bit of a, a chaplain. Well, well Manipul, and, you you play Iron Hands. Can you give us kind of an in depth explanation of what an Iron Father is? Well, I I would take that back to one of the first chapter approved I read, uh, chapter approved I read in White Dwarf many years ago. There's a few things about. Iron Hand's doctrine that actually got me into wanting to um, play them. One was that in in that edition, third or fourth, I suppose, the Iron Hands did not field squads of Terminators because they didn't have enough sets of Terminator armor to make full squads. They would outfit their sergeants in Terminator armor, and they did not have access to chaplains. Because of their close association with the machine cult, the they they used the Iron Fathers instead that were a mix of chaplain and a tech priest. 
because for them, they're more on the side of not worshiping the emperor, but almost more like they they worship the machine god. That would be much closer to what they would have for an idea of worship, even though in 30k that would be completely incomprehensible. But we already saw in the other in, in the other fleets that there were chaplains that were there to boost morale and to promote the imperial truth. They were also installed post-Edict of Nikea to ensure that all chapters were following that rule. But in this case, the the Iron Father seemed to be kind of extension of the Council of Medusa. And the Council of Medusa is the the, the rulership of the of the Iron Hands, the the clans. Because they don't have the same sort of structure that the other clans do. They have a, a council that meets together and decides stuff. So anyway, uh, Captain Balhan is saddled with this uh, Iron Father who is, you know, they, they come up on these solar collectors and Balhan is like, we need to fall back and inform the fleet. And the Iron Father that's with him says, no, we need to move forward and strike. And Balhan says, the last time I did that, I fell into an ambush and Ferris Manus almost cut my head off. So, He's able to convince the Iron Father that falling back and forming the fleet is the right thing to do, because in the past, any time they've tried to press an attack, the Diasporics have just run away. Well, word gets back to Ferris Manus, and Ferris Manus says, we got to strike while the iron's hot. And when word of that gets to Fulgrim, Fulgrim's a little upset about it, because he's his mentality is basically, why did the Iron Hands call us for help if they're just going to rush in all willy-nilly? Well, as we see later on, the Iron Hands, they kind of did the right thing because they were able to pin down the Diasporic's fleet. But right as the Iron Hands are kind of starting to take uh, mass casualties and are uh, almost on the verge of having to fall back, the Emperor's children jump in on the other side of this... um, this uh, star system and are able to pen in the diasporics fleet. And this is where we see some pretty interesting fl- uh, fleet action. And I think a, a, one of the reasons this scene is in there is it's got to show Ferris Manus's impetuosity that he always wants to charge ahead, go hit hard and hit fast, which will come back to get him in uh, later in the book. Yeah. This, yeah. And this scene is also in there to show um, kind of full Grimm's, sort of, he, he's starting to hear this voice, uh, which he's just finally assigned to, well, this is my subconscious talking to me. And the voice is perfectly like, yep, I'm your subconscious. Just call me the spirit of perfection. Um, but one of the things I believe it says here is like, let, just let him get destroyed. Uh, let Ferris Manus be destroyed uh, because he didn't listen to your perfect plan. Uh, you're so perfect, Fulgrim. You're just the best. And um, but it, it talks about that, how he, he's hearing the, this voice in his mind, which he's again, determined to just be his own, but it's not so, not so certain that that's the case. So the, the fleet action takes place and we see this really cool scene where Fulgrim has this custom starfighter called the Firebird. 
and it is a ship of unique design that Fulgrim and Ferris Manus built together. So this is the work of two Primarchs put together. This is, it's a vessel like the galaxy has never seen. Yeah, and does it's, it even say, does it even say like if it's based off a certain pattern or anything? I think it is, things, I think it's completely unique. Yeah, that was one of the things I could never really get a good picture of what this thing is supposed to look like. I know it's got like crescent curved wings and like a big, um, I guess, beak in the middle is what you have. It might be described, but we don't get you're right. We don't get a good descriptor of it, but Fulgrim's flying it himself. It is, it's a drop ship. It's a gunship. It's a landing craft. It's kind of all these things put together uh, and it excels at all those roles. It's, it's almost perfect, but Fulgrim is. The, the wiki says it's a heavily modified Stormbird. If you trust the wiki. I don't yeah, know see, if I, but that's the thing is they don't say Stormbird anywhere in the book. I yeah, I don't remember. Maybe that they at say all it either. in later books. But I know when Ferris Manus boards the Emperor's Children uh, flagship, he is flying in a heavily modified Stormbird. So it's weird that they would describe his landing craft as a heavily modified Stormbird, but not the Firebird. Anyway, um. Fulgrim is flying through the, the maelstrom of battle and he's heading for the Diasporic's capital ship, which I think is a big missile carrier or something like that. It's, it's a giant vessel. It, it easily outclasses um, any of the other ships there. And it's of a hybrid design of both. Uh, it's based on an imperial body or uh, I guess what you would call a human uh, construct modified with Xenos technology. And the Iron Hands of the Emperor's children see this as an abomination. It's got to be destroyed. So Fulgrim is leading his Emperor's children in via the Firebird. And he is way out of formation and about to be shot down when the Iron Hands flagship, the Fist of Iron, comes out of nowhere and starts dueling with this uh, diaspora, diasporic's capital ship. And it's a very cinematic scene because you can just imagine, you know, this lone craft flying through all the flak fire, uh, just, you know, taking hits left and right. And then out of nowhere, this monstrous monolithic shape comes out of nowhere, overshadowing it, and just starts taking all that damage and then dishing it right back out. Because the, the uh, capital ships, the Gloriana class vessels and the way i understand it the emperor had 20 of them crafted one for each primal so we can assume that that the fist of iron is one of these gloriana class ships we also know that the mccrag's honor the vengeful spirit and the endurance are all glorianas as well they're they're incredibly unique because there's very few of them um actually notably uh, i don't believe that the lion's ship is a gloriana it's its that, own unique. It's a unique design of old Terran. Interesting. Um, yeah, I would. I, I remember reading that somewhere. I would want to research that one more because that's pretty interesting. Because I also know that I think it's mentioned at one point that uh, the Ultramarines have two. They had the Gauntlet of Power, and they had the McCrag's Honor. And I think the Gauntlet of Power was the one that was destroyed when Bobby G was wounded by Fulgrim at the end. Anyway. Um, so actually Solomon Demeter. No, I'm full of shit. It's, uh, 
it is a Gloriana. I figured. The invincible reason. But uh, I remember what it is. He's modified the inside of it so that it's a maze that only he's memorized. I, okay, that makes sense. So, Sorry, completely off topic, but... Uh, so Solomon Demeter, being the dutiful soldier that he is, actually makes it... Uh, actually, no, the Emperor's children all kind of board around the same time. They, they have very successful boarding action, but before Fulgrim can clear the rest of the ship, Solomon Demeter makes it to the bridge first and kills the ship's captain, which was actually one of the Xenos that the Diasporics are allied with. And when Demeter sees that a Xenos is in command of humans, he's outright disgusted by this. He's like, that is is completely... Um, you know, completely unreasonable. I have no idea why humans would do this. It's it's pretty pathetic. And we know that early on, when the Iron Hands had started engaging the Diasporics, Ferris Manus had told the human element, if you disavow these aliens and come with us, you'll have a nice happy life with the Imperials. And all those humans who had been integrated with this alien society for so long decided to say no. And it got them annihilated for, you know, for that reason, basically. Some of them were captured as slaves and sent off to be, to be human slaves in another world. And the, the saddest part of the book is there at the end of that chapter where Solomon hears the words from the alien captain. Remember that? Yeah, it was psychic. And the, and the captain says, all we wished it was to be left alone. There's a lot of that in this era. That's the Imperium, baby. <laughs> Join or die. Convert or be burned to cinders. So, when Solomon Demeter has this incredibly successful uh, run through the ship, he neutralizes the bridge, kills the captain, and Fulgrim storms on onto the bridge. They, well, Solomon gets really lucky in where his boarding torpedo impacts. It impacts like up the neck of the uh, of the command bridge, so he's already like over halfway there compared to the rest of the the forces um, when he lands. Uh, but he does have a, a really good uh, a really good fight to get through to the uh, to the command bridge. But. Uh, sorry, but Fulgrim is pretty upset by this because he sees it as Demeter uh, stealing his glory, and he sees Ferris Manus intervening in the space battle as stealing glory as well. And his little uh, subconscious, the spirit of perfection, says, "Yeah, they're stealing from you. You know that that glory was rightfully yours." And Fulgrim storms off of the bridge after that, and he starts beating, you know, beating his head, saying, "No, no, no! Solomon Demeter is a noble soldier, and Ferris Manus is my brother. He loves me. He saved me in that in that battle." And the voice says, "No, they're they're using you for their own ends. They just want to ride your coattails to to success or fame, glory, whatever." And you know, Fulgrim has like a full on mental breakdown because of this. You know. Very few people see it. I think the Legion keeps it quiet, but he is really upset by this, and you can you can see these conflicting emotions in him as this happens. Yeah, um, he, there's even at one one point where, like you said, he says like, "Oh, Solomon is a great captain, um, and he deserves the glory of, of winning out the day." 
Um, he did it honorably and all of this stuff. And then this voice is just like, no, no, it should have been you. He should have known to wait for you. Um, and then I, in particular, I, I do love the, um, when the fist of iron saves the firebird because the, the firebird was going to be blown to smithereens, but this voice in his mind is like, nah, man, you had it. You got this, man. You're the best. It goes every, every, everything short of just being like, love you, daddy. Yeah, that scene where, where Fulgrim th- throws the tantrum, that whenever reading it, that that scene actually surprised me that a Primarch would be so petty. And I was trying to determine if was that really Fulgrim's emotions or was that the voice of the sword go, go, going on? Probably a little bit of both. See, I, I think I think it's both. I think Fulgrim is absolutely that petty. Um, I think that uh, because. You know, the de- what spill the beans here. It's a, it's a demon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, demon, demons in, in 40K, they, they're really just, they, they lock onto your weaknesses and, you know, blow them out of proportion, really. So this is... So I think that Fulgrim might have that thought, but he is certainly diplomatic enough to know. And I think we all have thoughts like that. He is, he's man enough to know, you know, my brother did the right thing. But as Brandon just said, that's what we see a lot of in 40K is that the demons really latch on to your, your biggest insecurities and your, the, you know, they, they really worm them themselves into your, all the nooks and crannies and find a way to subvert y- your own, um, uh, your own strengths and really cultivate weaknesses, so to speak. But at any time, Fulgrim could have turned away from this path. If he had exercised more willpower or wanted something else, he could have turned away from it. But he's so obsessed with his path to perfection, and he thinks this is where it's going to lead, that he, he just refuses to turn, turn away. It's back to that pride that he has. Yeah, I, I think that's what we're saying here, is that the stuff the, the demon is influencing him, sure, but he's making the choices. He's, he's still driving the boat. Yeah, it, at this point, he is still possessed of free will. So, absolutely, he could at any time have admitted he was wrong. And in the next section, we see that he's got a really good opportunity to, to turn away. If someone confronts him on this, and he could make a big change, but it doesn't go very well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing your perspective on everyone's perspective on that next scene because it's probably one of my favorite parts of the book. I really enjoy this, uh, what comes next. So, let's see. Are we done with the diasporic section? Did I miss anything? So, at the conclusion of the, the big space battle, the diasporics are destroyed. The All the aliens are killed. The remaining humans are carted off to be slaves on another world. And the Emperor's children and Iron Hands gather in friendship and brotherhood, say their goodbyes, and bid a fond farewell to one another. And it's it's a very brotherly experience. Fulgrim's a little sore, uh, but um, you know they they do part as friends, and you know friendship is had by all. Now we cut to our next arc. And we're introduced to an alien perspective, I think, for the first time in the Horus Heresy. 
And I very often have problems with, uh, and I know there used to be a rule about this in the Black Library, that authors were not allowed to write alien perspectives because a human author could never understand how an alien mind actually functions. Manipal, do you remember that? Yeah, I remember reading something about that with one of their one of their, their guidelines, but clearly here we get an Eldar's perspective. So let's rewind the clock a little bit. Humanity was not the first race to conquer the stars. If we go back a few millennia, there were the Eldar and the Necrons before that and the Old Ones before that. Now, the Eldar were actually a subservient race created by the old ones. Anyway, the the Eldar at one time had conquered the galaxy, lived a long, prosperous, and decadent lifestyle, and then they suffered their own cataclysm, which, as we find out later on, spawned the fourth chaos god, Slaanesh. Moving past that, the Eldar now in the 31st millennia exist as this void-born race that live on these giant world ships called um, what do they call them? Craft worlds. Craft worlds. Now, we get the perspective of an Eldar Farseer who is this kind of far-seeing psychic that can see, you know, ages into the future, predict things, and they they kind of, they're kind of pathfinders uh, for the Eldar race, and the character in question here is Eldrad Ulfane, who is still alive in the 41st millennia, as far as I know. I know he was back in 5th edition when we played, but I think at one point Abaddon gets a hold of him, and that's kind of the end of the story. Anyway... As far as I know, he's still alive. Oh, I'm pretty sure that Abaddon had some fun with him at one point, and... He, well, he probably beat the crap out of him, but, you know, GW's very loath to kill off their named characters that exist in-game. Right. So, let's see here. Eldrad is having this, uh, this far-reaching vision concerning the human race. And he knows that very soon the galaxy is going to erupt in flames... And it all hinges on a handful of characters, primarily the Primarchs. So, Maniple, you had a very interesting observation during this uh, this um, vision quest that Eldrad is, is having. And do you want to start talking about that, maybe? Yeah, I'll read just the little quote here. It's very short. And when I, I read it, I went back and read it three or four times to make sure I got it. And he sees this, he's speculating on how this primitive species could have moved so quickly with their, with their conquest of the stars. But he said, Already Eldrad had seen the death of their race, the blood-soaked fields of the world named for the end of days, and the final victory of the Dark Savior. So he's seen the death of their race. So he's seen that the human race will eventually die off completely. He saw the blood-soaked fields of the world named for the end of days. And if you've been in 40k long enough, you have to know the planet Armageddon, right? So Armageddon featured in a couple of different campaigns and was big in Abaddon's plan. And the one of his Black Crusades went there. There's a lot to Armageddon, and that's what I think he's talking about. But what do you think, Fruit? Armageddon, Armageddon is also... 
it has been renamed. Its original name was Olinor. And Olinor was the the site of the Warmaster's coronation and where the Emperor retired and said to be the homeworld of the orcs. So there's a lot a lot going on there. It's it's also where um Angron first reappeared after the, the heresy. And I think it's where, um, who's the, the chief librarian of the Blood Angels? He was buried alive while suffering the Black Rage. Mephiston. And, uh, and I think that was on Armageddon where he fought his way through the Black Rage and came back out on the other side, which we know has not happened to anyone else. So there's something special about this planet, and I think that's what Eldred is seeing. And then, but this last line, and the final victory of the Dark Savior. Who's the Dark Savior? That is the one that troubled me the most, I think, because mm-hmm. um, wasn't there another line about the return of the uh, return of the warriors lost or something like that? Yeah. So a paragraph later, he says he saw the rise of warriors, the treachery of kings, and the great eye opening to release the mighty heroes of legend trapped there to return to their warrior sides for the final battle. So the great eye, I think has to refer to the eye of terror, Mm -hmm. which is the, the, um, the physical, it's the physical scar left behind when Slaanesh was born. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, a direct route into the warp. It's, it's the warp leeching its way into the, the known galaxy. And we know in 40K, the the legend about some of the Primarchs lost. Like, uh, Korax gets in a ship, and the last transmission from that ship is on its way to the Eye of Terror. And then Lehman Russ and an entourage of his, um, his most trusted warriors also disappear into the war. Jagatai Khan is lost in the webway, which I think is a parallel. I'm not sure how that works. It's like a parallel to the warp. It's not the warp itself, but it is, it's another alternate, alternate dimension. It's, it's, uh, I believe it is the warp, but it's like the warp. If the warp is a bowling alley, it's the warp with the guide rails up. Interesting. It, 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 think it, think of it this way. Bear with me on this, this analogy here. If the warp was um, is a bowling alley, but the alley is actually only wide enough for the ball to fit down perfectly, and if it deviates at all, it goes in the gutter, the webway is that, but put the guide rails up. Right. So I think that that last line there refers to the Eye of Terra releasing uh, the, the Primarchs that have been lost. But the final victory of the Dark Savior is the one that troubles me the most because it, it, could, it could refer to so many people. And as you said, Manable, it, it's hard to think that one of these Chaos Primarchs could be redeemed in a way. So a Dark Savior... Uh, I don't think it's a Chaos Primarch. I don't think it's Horus. But my... It could be the Emperor. So that that's what I was getting at. Uh, that's one of my theories, that there's a rumor out there that 
the way the Emperor convinced the Chaos Gods to give up their secrets to craft the Primarchs, he agreed to become another Chaos God. But he deviated from that plan at the last minute, and he basically lies to the four Chaos Gods, and you know, doesn't accept that that role or whatever, and it throws it's part of what throws the galaxy into turmoil. So well, and and we actually, if if you've read the Dark Imperium books, um, we get a good idea of when Gilliman goes and talks to the Emperor after he wakes up in the forty first millennium, um, and the Emperor has basically he's lost his humanity um, at that point. So he sees himself as like still, you know, I'm humanity's best chance and all of that's and all of that but he he can't relate in any way so like it 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 wouldn't surprise me if he kind of went all terminator and was like well humanity's best chance is for them to all die well and if you can go pretty deep into the lore on for instance the the inquisitor uh game that was out and I, i had a bunch of the inquisitor stuff there were different factions of the Inquisition that talked about the Emperor and his eventual rebirth. Uh, there, there are some factions that believe the Emperor needs to die in order to be reborn in his final form. There are those who believe that another Emperor is going to is going to arise. There are those who believe that the uh, Emperor is just uh, shepherding us towards a psychic future where all human beings are psychically powerful enough where they don't need him anymore. And then he will just disappear and all humanity will become as powerful as the emperor. So there's a lot of, of speculation about what that what that might mean. But I've never seen anywhere this notion of a dark savior. This is the first place I can ever remember seeing it. So um, one of the theories I'm fond of, and in, in this is based on a few facts that we know. So when Slanesh was born, Slanesh ate up all the Eldar gods except for the the god of their joke their um, their harlequin god um their god of war Cain divided himself into the avatars and lives on that way and then the elder goddess of life Isha was almost killed by Slanesh when Nurgle intervened and took her as a trophy and keeps her pinned up in his garden of plagues now one of the legends about the Primarch of the Space Wolves, Lehman Russ, is that he went into the Eye of Terror looking for the Tree of Life to revive the Emperor. And that he is lost in Nurgle's garden trying to find the Tree of Life. Which I think is a... Um, if you put the two together, Isha would be the Tree of Life and Lehman Russ is looking for her. Anyway, that's just my theory. Well, I think the only solution to this... Brandon is to try to get Luton 09 on our next podcast to discuss this <laughs> or, or some we're, other, uh, we're a like little that. bit small to be bringing guests <laughs> like Luton on. I mean, if he, if he wants to reach out, it's uh, legioncast18 at gmail.com. We'd love to have you on the show, Luton, but it, uh, <laughs> I, I would be surprised. Okay, so enough of the theories. The whole Dark Savior line really bothers me. I'm going to be up for a week thinking about that. But um, Eldred has all these these very interesting visions and prophecies that... Um, oh, another line is the Rise of Heroes. Now, one of the new models to get released for the Leagues of Votan is Uther the Destined, who is said to 
uh, do something of great consequences in the galaxy. So I wonder if that, um, uh, like you said, Paul, and nothing gets put in these books by accident, but I wonder if that was uh, known when this was being written. I kind of doubt it, but it's really interesting if it is. Well, and so basically this vision of, of Eldrad, he, he thinks that he can use Fulgrim to turn this thing around that, that he sees. He thinks he can convince the Mon K to take a different path. And that sets up the whole second half of the book, this confrontation with Eldrad and Fulgrim. Yeah, and I think that's a pretty good spot to, to wrap it up for, for our first half here. Um, so Warwick, do you want to, you want to plug the socials and, uh, we'll go ahead and, and wrap up here. Yeah. So check us out, uh, send us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com, or you can check us out on Twitter at legioncast18, a horse heresy podcast and a special shout out to everybody coming from the, uh, FNT super chats that we've sent in a couple of times. Uh, we've really seen a spike in our numbers and we're really appreciative of you guys. And we're, we're looking forward to hearing back from the rest of the fellowship. Definitely look us up and let us know how we're doing. Leave us a, a good review and leave us some comments so we know what to do. Yeah, and special thanks to Manipal for joining us again on this, uh, on this episode. We've really enjoyed your insights and uh, we're looking forward to having you back for part two. It's my pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right, until next time. Thanks, everyone.